Hello and welcome to today's episode. I will be speaking to Dr. Brett McFarlane on gastroesophageal reflux medications. Dr. McFarlane, tell us about yourself. Oh, thanks very much for asking me along, David. My name's uh, Brett McFarlane. I'm a, I'm a pharmacist by training, and I primarily worked in uh, community pharmacy for many years before I went back and completed a PhD uh, actually in a medical department at the University of Queensland on skin science, mainly about the movement of chemicals uh, and drug molecules across the skin. But I developed an interest in um, gut health after being diagnosed myself with celiac disease and also having significant experience with IBS, where I had a six-month break from work uh, because of my IBS. So uh, I've got a lot of personal experience as well. And that's really where my interest in gut health is, has come from, and particularly in the area of um, supplementation with probiotics. This is the clinical takeaway from HealthEd, interviewing leading medical experts on important topics that can positively impact the way you practice. This HealthEd educational segment is sponsored by Reckitt. All content is the true, accurate and independent opinion of the expert, and the views expressed are entirely their own. Here's your host and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Uh, Brett, we're also looking at the gut today, but we're focusing more on um, gastroesophageal reflux and particularly the medications we use for it. Why don't we start by just looking at the non-medical approaches and managements of reflux? Yeah, I think it's a good place to start, um, particularly for the patients who might only be experiencing intermittent symptoms. And there are some simple strategies that people can use to minimise reflux symptoms. While we don't want patients to start restricting their diet without guidance, often they will know what foods and beverages trigger their symptoms and these can be avoided or exposure minimized at least. Mm -hmm. Reflux symptoms will usually occur relatively quickly after the trigger is ingested. So that makes identification of triggers to avoid relatively easy. If the potential trigger is avoided and the episodes of reflux or the severity reduces, that's a good indication that your trigger is identified and you've got the right one and the patient can avoid it into the future. The food and beverage triggers are many and varied for different people, but common examples would include spicy foods, acidic foods, fatty foods, caffeinated beverages and alcohol. So avoid those if they're identified as triggers, but other dietary strategies would be to include avoiding very large meals. Um, so eating smaller, more regular meals, avoiding eating and drinking within two hours of bedtime, uh, avoiding stooping or bending after food, and avoiding exercising around food times and food intake. In terms of modifiable lifestyle factors, reflux is more prevalent in people who are overweight. So weight loss will help and cigarette smoking is also a trigger. So support to manage smoking is important. Uh, the patient could try elevating their bed head a little, um, particularly if the reflux happens at night. Sleeping on two pillows, which is something that we sort of used to say it's not particularly useful because, well, to begin with, it probably will hurt your neck and you don't want that but also we tend to roll off our pillows during the night or the pillow could end up on the floor. So that's not much use. The other thing would be to recommend 
uh, if possible, to lay on the left side rather than the right. Um, this can help because of the anatomy of the gastroesophageal junction. And the other important thing to think about for medical practitioners would be looking at the medicines that the person with reflux is taking to see if the reflux is a possible adverse effect. The common culprits, of course, are NSAIDs, but also uh, corticosteroids, iron supplements, antibiotics, bisphosphonates, vitamin C, mm -hmm. beta agonists, warfarin, oral estrogen, calcium channel blockers, tricyclics, statins and chemotherapeutic agents. So if the offending medicine is identified, the first thing I think to do would be to investigate with the patient how they are taking the medicine. For example, are they taking it with food if that is appropriate uh, and with a big glass of water to wash it down properly? Are they taking it before laying down? Perhaps it's better to change the dose to the morning rather than at night. And this might help with the reflux. If those dose-related issues are all fine, perhaps try swapping to a medicine that has less effect on reflux. So swapping to a COX-2-specific NSAID, for example, or reducing or splitting the dose. For example, with iron supplements, maybe splitting the dose to a BD dose to reduce the uh, irritation. If that doesn't work, all of those sort of dose-related things don't help, then maybe a short course of acid suppressive therapy might be indicated. Uh, I guess while it's not ideal, it might be necessary for the patient to take something for acid daily to minimize the effect of the medicine that's causing the symptoms. And we do see that in people, for example, who have been taking NSAIDs in the longer term, they might be co-prescribed to PPI. But of course, if that all of those things don't work, then there needs to be further investigation, um, say for the potential for helicobacter or a more concerning pathology. Now, I hear what you're saying, um, Brad, you said you, you give them a short-term trial. Either we give it to them or now patients might just walk in a pharmacy and yeah. get their hands on. Either, you know, we, they have a choice now between a PPI, H2 antagonists and good old antacids. With your background as a pharmacist, uh, what do patients tend to do? I think it's probably easier to take the PPI. It's only a seven-day course. And it's just a simple tablet, so a low-dose one, so you don't have to sort of take a liquid or anything like that. We don't have the H2s anymore. They've sort of disappeared from the environment in the last few years. They were a good alternative. So more than likely, they would go for a tablet. But I guess with a, an antacid or alginate, you've got more flexibility for those people who might not necessarily be having daily symptoms, so they can just take it to address their their sort of PRN symptoms, I suppose. Then a quick question. How many patients then convert from a PRN uh, scenario to a daily mm. long-term scenario? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think that needs to be a focus of um, this area of medicine because we only want that to happen when there's a clinical indication. Clearly, if it's being caused by a medic medicine, then it's much better to address the offending medicine than what it is to add another one in on top of it. So that's why I think the seven-day trial is the important communication. You know, have a go. You're obviously in distress, particularly if they're telling you that it's affecting their um, work or, or lifestyle, but let's not get you onto a, a, a long-term management um, with a PPI if we can eradicate the, the cause of, of the reflux symptoms more easily than that.
Now, before we talk about the long and short-term use, uh, Brett, are there really any differences between the different PPIs out there? Uh, well, pharmacologically and kinetically, they're actually quite similar. There is differences, I suppose, in the way that they are metabolized. But um, I'm happy to talk about um, the, the PPIs a little bit more specifically. They're very interesting drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, they're quite fascinating in the way that they work. And if you understand their kinetics, they actually work differently to the way that their kinetics suggest that they should. Oh, right. um, so uh, it's really important to understand, I suppose, what the proton pump is and what it does in order to be able to marry that with the kinetics and the pharmacology of the PPI. Mm -hmm. The proton pump is pretty much as the name suggests, it's, it's a membrane bound protein which pumps protons or acid ions across an electrochemical gradient into the lumen of the stomach, where acid obviously contributes to the breakdown of the uh, meal in a macro sense, but also obviously more uh, micro sense breaking also down of the proteins. But um, gastric acid does a couple of other things that is really important that we don't always have front of mind. And that is that it does help protect um, any inf uh, you know, systemic uh, a distribution of ingested pathogens. Um, obviously, you know, we're eating food that is not necessarily perfectly clean or um, et cetera in the environment. So stomach acid does help to protect our small bowel from seeing those pathogens. And it's also involved in activation of vitamin B12, which enables the absorption. So there's many different functions of gastric acid it's important physiologically, but unfortunately, it does cause difficulty in some people. So uh, PPIs irreversibly inhibit the active form of the proton pump in the gastric mucosa parietal cell, which means that the pump is taken out of action completely until mm. it is replaced. And they are that takes about 36 hours to replace a proton, a proton pump but it does result in acid suppression that lasts for about 48 hours. Because the proton pump is the final step in the acid secretion into the stomach, PPIs reduce both basal acid secretion as well as acid secretion stimulated by histamine and acetylcholine, which occurs earlier on in the process of acid ion generation. The PPI works at the mucosal surface, so it doesn't need to be absorbed systemically. They are acid labile drugs, um, so they're broken down by acid. So the formulation is commonly enteric coated to reduce acid mediated degradation too early after ingestion. So theoretically, a PPI should be taken before food mm -hmm. um, as food will cause gastric acid secretion, which then deactivates the PPI. And then, you know, one assumes that an empty stomach also allows a maximum contact of the PPI with the gastric mucosa where it is active, but proton pumps are constantly being turned over and remade. Mm -hmm. So although the PPI irreversibly knocks out the active pumps, there are inactive pumps there waiting to come online and also more pumps are being constantly made. So it takes about three days on average for PPIs to reach their maximum effect mm -hmm. of inhibiting the majority of the pumps as these newer pumps are constantly coming online. The half-life of the PPI is actually relatively short, only a couple of hours usually, 
which is counterintuitive given that they suppress acid for up to 48 hours. Mm -hmm. So it's because of that irreversible uh, inhibition as opposed to an ongoing inhibition of new pumps as the duration from the first dose progresses. So this has an implication for therapy because while PPIs are useful for an acute case of reflux, you don't get that maximum effectiveness for up to three days after you take the first dose. Mm -hmm. um, this is also possibly why people taking PPIs on a daily basis can experience breakthrough reflux symptoms, particularly in the evening, because you've got a natural surge in gastric acid uh, at that time, sort of at around nine or 10 o'clock at night. And by that stage, the PPI has long been degraded. But this is where the potential for twice daily PPI dosing ar has arisen. You know, we're so used to PPIs being given just once a day, but the potential for dividing the dose in half and giving it twice a day to address this uh, evening increase in acid or to use another medicine for acid at night, like an alginate, for example, uh, to cover off of that. As I said before, they're actually quite similar. Obviously, the pharmacology across the group is similar. The efficacy and safety profiles are similar. There's variation in terms of the enzymes that metabolize them. The difference really is in their dosing regimen. So now we talk about the dose of the PPI in terms of low dose, standard dose, and high dose. And you would determine that you would choose that dosage regimen based on the patient's diagnosis, their clinical findings, and uh, probably the severity of the symptoms. Now, Brett, you mentioned um, some issues surrounding the metabolism of some of the PPIs. May I just get your comment on, say, a patient who takes a drug like uh, clopidogrel, which we know is a prodrug, and needs to be metabolized to the active metabolite, but it uses um, the cytochrome, I believe, um, uh, C2. P19 or something like that, and that PPIs may somehow interfere with the activation of clopidogrel. Yeah, I think the, those studies were mainly done uh, looking at omeprazole, and of course we've got other PPIs now that won't have the same metabolic profile as omeprazole, like robeprazole, for example. And the cardiovascular outcomes for these patients weren't necessarily altered. So you, you'll, you'll find that the uh, your sort of tertiary references like the AMH is still saying that PPIs and clopidogrel can be um, co-administered. If you were concerned, then you could, uh, and the person is taking a meprazole, then you could, I suppose, swap them over to robeprazole, which has a different metabolic pathway, or perhaps consider reducing the dose of the PPI, which you know, is probably something that we should be doing anyway. Um, particularly looking at those people who have been taking long-term high-dose PPI and looking at reducing the dose, which would therefore reduce the effect on an, a drug like a clopidogrel. Or if it's clinically appropriate, perhaps looking at, and the person must continue to take the uh, PPI, looking um, at the clopidogrel and, and perhaps swapping that out for something that is less uh, problematic like ticagrel or, or prasigrel, which doesn't have the same metabolic uh, issues. You mentioned earlier that the, the um, acid actually does a lot of things uh, in the gut. Yeah. 
from the breaking down of the macronutrients that we eat to the micronutrients and the fact that it actually defends us from um, the distribution of ingested pathogens. Could you just make a, some comments about the possibility, if you like, of micronutrient deficiency and the potential of uh, changed uh, bowel microbiome if a patient uses a PPI long term? Well, people with chronic reflux do obviously have a, gr a greater risk of developing long-term conditions, things like you know, erosive esophagitis, Barrett's esophagus, uh, esophageal stricture, and um, adenocarcinoma of the esophagus. So obviously these people who have these greater risks will potentially need to take a PPI for a longer period of time. And their risk, I suppose, of that long-term PPI use has been very well investigated. You'll find if you look at the literature, there's a lot of papers that are sort of titled the myths around um, chronic PPI use. And, and some of those myths have, have tried to be busted, um, primarily from epidemiological data, which is not always great to rely on. But suppression of gastric acid is obviously good for reflux symptoms, but as you mentioned before, David, gastric acid has a couple of other um, important uh, activities, decreases the risk of gut infection, and we have seen uh, reported cases uh, and some epi data around PPI, people who are taking PPI with increased uh, risk of C. difficile, for example, or a small bowel bacterial overgrowth. So there is observation there that it can increase targeting of ingested pathogens past the stomach where they would usually get burnt up um, and into the bowel. I suppose the question becomes how do we address this and you know I guess advising the patient of the risk of it without concerning them is is probably important and and keeping a track on that patient clinically to see if they're presenting with concerning gut symptoms whether or not we're at the stage yet of recommending a supplement, a probiotic supplement specifically to reduce this, I'm not really sure. Um, you know, probiotic supplements are relatively well tolerated unless you are a patient that's got an immune suppressing um, condition and maybe we need to rethink that, but there's certainly very little harm that a probiotic can do. And I'm sure that, you know, with the amount, the huge amount of research that's going on this field at the moment, that maybe we will find out a little bit more information uh, about specific supplements. But I think as long as the patient is taking one that's got a decent dose in it, so definitely billions of colony forming units, and it contains a, a lactobacillus or a bifidobacteria, for example, then you're, you're pretty much on the right track. In terms of micronutrient deficiency, um, the ones that have been highlighted are B12 deficiency mm. because of the way that acid is so important in ma maintaining and promoting the absorption of B12. Mm. Um, but then you've got all of the divalent cations, which are, are relatively insoluble themselves. So they need uh, acid to improve their solubility. So we're talking about magnesium, calcium, iron, mm -hmm. and there have definitely been, um, you know, reports and epi data around long-term PPI use and associated hypomagnesemia, hypocalcemia, and anemias, um, probably also related to the B12 issue. And the question around whether or not that then leads to increased risk of hospital Osteoporosis is, I think, still being um, worked out, but there are definitely 
studies around a fracture risk in, in people who are taking a PPI, but whether that's causal, we don't know yet. And then the other thing would be just looking at that risk of the person for kidney disease, because okay. that's probably the thing that we're um, most concerned about now um, with uh, the uh, observations that are coming out in the literature, particularly if the person has a pre-existing kidney issue um, before they're uh, prescribed the PPI. What was the kidney disease that you're referring to? It's interstitial nephritis and kidney disease. I guess if your concern would be around uh, a chronic kidney issue or interstitial nephritis, that would be the group that you'd probably do a bit of research on before deciding what to do in relation to the PPI. Now, before we come to the appropriate use of PPIs, um, I, I just been listening to what you're saying about the gut. And I'm thinking, uh, Brett, if I was traveling to a country that has endemic pathogenic E. coli or some waterborne bacterial disease that I worry about, maybe it's a good time for me not to be taking PPIs. Look, I think that that's actually a really important thing to think about and for physicians to engage and pharmacists to engage with with patients around. And that was, I mean, I wasn't taking PVI, but that was my personal experience and, and probably the beginning of my road to potentially celiac disease and, and definitely with IBS. And I was traveling overseas and ended up with a serious gut infection. And those are the ones that you really want to avoid. I mean, everyone gets a certain sense of traveler's diarrhea and there's good evidence to show that supplement with a, a probiotic um, particularly the yeast type ones, Cerevisiae, Saccharomyces cerevisiae and Boulardii, significantly decrease traveler's diarrhea risk. But those severe gut infections are the ones that you absolutely want to avoid. So taking steps like ensuring that you've got some confidence over the food that you're consuming uh, in terms of the, of the cleanliness. But having said that, the, I went to a very fancy restaurant and unfortunately chose to uh, eat shellfish when I probably shouldn't have. And so it's, it's so difficult. Brett, you've taken us through a lot about um, medications. Uh, when we trial them for a week and see if they work, uh, we've looked at uh, some of the issues that may come about with the long-term use of these sorts of medications, some miss, some with truths, some being cautious. Mm. Tell us how should we be using this drug properly? I think it's going to definitely depend on the patient. Maybe, I mean, you asked a pertinent question before about what the patient would prefer. Maybe we tend to lean more towards the PPI as the first choice because it is easier. Um, and maybe also because there's a sense that an antacid or alginate is less effective. And certainly, you know, when you compare them head to head, obviously the PPI is going to come out on top. And there are comparative studies that have done that. But those simple treatments are definitely a good place to start. And, you know, my advice would be to begin with something like antacid or alginate in the first instance and see how the patient goes um, before starting to have a conversation around PPI. If you get to that stage, then the seven-day trial is the way to go. Third, certainly you wouldn't go any further than 30 days. Mm -hmm. um, if the patient doesn't have the desired response after 30 days, then I'd put it to you that a PPI is not uh, the right 
thing for them and there's no point in continuing with it, you would look at other alternative diagnoses or perhaps like an atypical case of um, reflux and potentially consider you know, referral to an um, ENT or something like that for further investigation. But they're useful. We, we, we want to go for the lowest dose that's possible, of course. Um, so, you know, um, you might need to commence them on a, a, a 40 milligram SMEPRAZOLE dose, of course, but let's not leave people on doses <laughs> like that. Uh, absolutely. And then look for opportunities to bring them, you know, step down after a certain period of time and then and with the potential to, to do de a deprescribing process. But that has to be done cautiously because, as we know, everyone is going to have a return of symptoms, a rebound return of symptoms as they come down off a of PPI. So stepping down slowly and replacing um, some doses with something like uh, alginate or antacid. Uh, and importantly, you know, confirming with the patient that we'd, we'd really like you to stop taking this medicine because it's not something that we're going to keep you on over a long period of time but your symptoms may return and this is what we're going to do in order to reduce um, mm. distress for you. You mention uh, antacid and alginates almost as if they are interchangeable, are they? And if not, what's the difference? I would really like people to take one message out of this uh, podcast and that is that alginate and antacid are um, very different. They're completely different mechanistically Antacids, you know, like sodium bicarbonate and aluminium hydroxide, neutralize the acid that is causing the reflux symptoms. So, you know, they're useful. Their onset of action is rapid. Their duration is quite short, though. So that's a disadvantage because you need to take regular doses throughout the day. And, but, you know, quick onset of action, good for symptoms, good for the patient, um, easy to take. Alginate, on the other hand, is a structural polysaccharide derived from seaweed. In the presence of acid iron in the stomach, calcium ions within the formulation react with the alginate to form a low-density viscous insoluble gel of calcium alginate. Bicarbonate ions react with acid iron to liberate carbon dioxide, which is trapped inside the gel, and that's how the foam develops. It's a buoyant foam, so it floats on the top of the stomach contents. So rather than neutralize the acid, which is what the antacid does, the alginate foam creates a physical barrier to stop the stomach contents from entering into the esophagus. So they've got completely different mechanisms of action. And these, this is an important differentiator for alginate because obviously Antacids and PPIs only address the acid component of refluxate. But of course, we know it's not just about acid. There are other components of refluxate that contribute to esophageal insult, including things like pepsin and bile, if you're refluxing from the um, duodenum. So because alginate forms that physical barrier on the top of the stomach contents, mm -hmm. it removes all of those things from uh, being able to access the esophageal mucosa. And there are some small studies that have shown as well that alginate will coat the surface of the esophagus mm -hmm. um, for a couple of hours. So that adds a mucoprotective effect. And the foam forms within a few minutes. So the onset of alginate is still fast, but the foam persists in the stomach for up to four hours. Um, so it provides a longer duration of action than an antacid. 
would do in order to facilitate that longer duration in the stomach then alginate should be taken after food so that it floats on top of the stomach mm-hmm. contents and it doesn't actually mix with the food because that will decrease the, the barrier function of the alginate. And alginate foam has a neutral pH, which means that it doesn't irritate the esophageal mucosa mm-hmm. and it can displace the layer of very low pH gastric content that can form on top of the stomach if food doesn't mix properly with gastric acid after consuming the food. This is called the postprandial gastric acid pocket. And it is a key factor in gastric reflux because it's um, been associated with increased frequency of reflux events. Wow. Uh, I certainly didn't know all that, Brett. Um, I'm beginning to think that uh, maybe alginates may actually be a better way to go because you still keep all the protective effects and digestive effects of your acid underneath. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So acid is still doing its job, but it just can't physically um, reach the um, the lower esophagus or, or even, you know, higher areas in the, in the case of, of people who experience those atypical symptoms. They are those that sell both the antacid and alginate together. Are alginates sold alone? It's an interesting question. So... The question is whether or not the dose of the antacid that is in the alginate is enough to be an antacid dose, or is it just contributing to the mechanism of the um, formation of the foam? Ah. Yeah. And I have to say that I'm not, I don't know. But yes, you will find products that could, that will say on the front that, you know, alginate um, with, Uh, antacid and so I guess they have the benefit of that dual action but alginate doesn't need an antacid to be effective it's all in the physical um, development of that foam how interesting almost wondering whether eating seaweed alone might be good (laughs) you'd have to jump up and down (laughs) (laughs) which you probably you don't you probably don't want to do if you've got reflux. You don't want to be jumping up and down. <laughs> oh, great. Look, um, as we come towards the end of the podcast, Brett, I do just want you to uh, go through some of the key points and summarise uh, your message to our GP listeners. Sure. Well, look, I know that your colleagues are seeing these patients so regularly. Reflux is, is you know, I don't want to use a well worn term, but it's almost, it's, it's endemic. But let's look at the lifestyle factors um, in the first instance, and, and even for ongoing patients, because, um, you know, not everyone is going to understand um, that the foods and beverages that they are taking is going to, in, going to potentially work in their, worsening their symptoms. So very important. Start off, if you've got a new patient, you know, start off with recommendation of an antacid or alginate, particularly for those ones who are just having Uh, ad hoc symptoms if they're um, saying to you that you know this is really adversely affecting their life then you um, potentially uh, still recommend the the alginate but start to consider the option of a short-term PPI Uh, I guess the benefit of the PPI is that um, if the symptoms if it's you know empiric process and the symptoms improve then you've got a pretty good shot at having a, the right diagnosis, I'll also consider you know the risk factors for um, other things that might present with um, reflux. Um, certainly, if after thirty day trial um, the symptoms aren't significantly improved, 
then the likelihood that the PPI is going to uh, be ongoing in, in terms of efficacy is, is pretty low. So we need to look at other um, ways of, of addressing the person's symptoms. Also really important to look at that medicines list, have a good think about whether or not something could be the cause of their symptoms, particularly if it's a new onset reflux and you might be able to tie that to beginning of a new medication, but don't just address the um, a medication change without finding out first, you know, how is the person taking it? Are they really just having it with a, a mouthful of water? They've got to be taking tablets with a nice big glass of water to make sure it's completely washed down and um, potentially taking it in the morning um, or if, if they are taking it at night now, and that's when their symptoms are primarily giving them their concern. And I just thank you for your time. Uh, Brett, it's been most educational and informative. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for your invitation, David. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.